0: Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Today's show has two segments, both focused on generative AI. In the first segment, I speak with Irene Suleiman, a researcher who's put a lot of thought into evaluating the release strategies for generative AI systems. Organizations, big and small, have pursued different methods for release of these systems, some holding their models and details about them very close, and some pursuing a more open approach. And in the second segment, I speak with Callie Schrader and Ben Winters at the Electronic Privacy Information Center about a new report they helped write about the harms of generative AI and what to do about them. First up, Irene Suleiman.
1: My name is Irene Suleiman. I'm policy director at Hugging Face.
0: Just really quick, for any listener that doesn't know what Hugging Face is, company with a funny name, can you give us the quick you know, one-two about Hugging Face and also about your role there?
1: Absolutely. Hugging Face is a, it is a community and a platform that is working to democratize good machine learning. So we primarily work with open, towards the open end of my gradient uh, models, data sets, and also spaces, which makes the kinds of systems that are popular today more accessible, especially to people who may not have a computer science background. Uh, we also provide a limited amount of computing power for people to do that kind of the kind of safety research that needs to happen uh, on these popular systems today. I've built our public policy, our policy work here at Hugging Face, but because I can't stay off my laptop, I, that's about a third of what I do. I spent two thirds of my time doing research, I find policy to be a mutually beneficial relationship with research, where I want to understand from policymakers what the public interest is, and then work with technical systems, especially large language models, on evaluating, on on risk mitigation, and publishing that research with the gradient framework that you see.
0: Irene, I quite liked this paper that you wrote uh, earlier this year the gradient of generative AI release methods and considerations. And I was pleased to see it in a kind of slightly more accessible format, I suppose, in uh, Wired in the last uh, few days. Kind of wanted to just kind of get your verbal sort of summary of the idea here. Uh, This is looking at the way that companies and other organizations go about releasing generative AI systems and why it matters.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you found this helpful. I've just been working on system releases for a few moons now, um, an AI time that sounds like eons, but often I just hear this binary conversation of open versus closed that is inaccurate for the landscape for how influential generative AI is today. We really need to understand not just systems impact, but how systems are being released to better understand their impact. Uh, So I created this framework. It's hard to to share graphics on a podcast, uh, but maybe we can walk through this gradient where all the way to the extreme leftmost end, I have fully closed, and all the way to the extreme rightmost end, I have fully open. That considers a system, not just a model. I think often we fixate on a model when we need to be looking at many system components like training data.
0: Maybe let's walk through each of those categories and perhaps give the listener just an example of the type of system that's been released in each category.
1: Absolutely. So I focus mostly on generative AI systems instead of foundation models or transformer-based systems, uh, mostly because I was one person trying to give uh, insight into a release landscape that can be extrapolated to other types of systems uh, like foundation models that aren't explicitly generative. If we walk through fully closed to fully open, what I would consider the most fully closed are systems that we don't even know about that maybe even a tiny team within a highly resourced organization is aware and is doing that kind of development and testing. Uh, But the ones that we are aware, we've seen most often from companies like Google and DeepMind. I base my framework based off of how a company originally released. So something like Lambda from Google today would be considered maybe slightly accessible due to Google's AI test kitchen, but for the purposes of understanding the landscape was First, fully closed. It was publicly announced, but nobody outside of Google could access any part of that system or its components. Part of what really stoked a lot of this release discussion conversation, at least in my spheres, was the release of GPT 2 in 2019 that I led with my colleagues and external partners at OpenAI. I also have a timeline in my gradient of release paper to be published at FACT that shows GPT-2 as an inflection point for when systems really started to close, especially from larger organizations. In my experience in open source world and having led this release, people tend to feel quite strongly about options for release a lot of proponents of open source believe that everything should be open all the time i don't consider myself an open source fundamentalist but um part of what helped me understand why people would Find themselves at one part of the gradient is what I put as tensions throughout the gradient. Some of the the reasons people feel strongly about openness is for the community research aspect for getting broader perspectives into a system and its components. Uh, But then you have some more people who are concerned about really powerful systems having malicious use capability. People on the internet do really weird things with whatever they have access to. And if you make systems more accessible, you have less control. Uh, and that's where the fully closed argument comes in.
0: A lot of times folks do present this as a kind of binary. Often in the media, I feel like these days there's a kind of binary between open AI and uh, the way mm-hmm. that it's released more recently, chat GBT, GBT4, and then stability AI and the way that eventually you know, it made uh, stable diffusion available. Uh, but on your gradient they're actually kind of close together in, on some level. Is that sort of accurate to say that they're they're really perhaps not so far apart?
1: Well, the way that I lay out the systems in my paper, because it's based off of only their initial release and not what we see from, for example, stability so far, uh, is I think a lot of folks are not aware that sta- uh, stable diffusion was originally a staged release that got leaked. Uh, I, I can't recall whether it was 4chan or Discord, but it also speaks to, how few mechanisms we have for securing more novel approaches to release. We see this with LAMA, where the the LAMA leakage really made folks question, can we trust more gated mechanisms or should we fully close? Um, I, I think that I was, I mean, that was just a bummer that we can't start to prototype methods for release without trusting the researchers with whom we share. I don't, that was that was kind of a tangential rant because I feel strongly about it.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, but let's talk about you know Llama for instance. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about that about the fact that I suppose ended up on 4chan. Um, I believe so. I guess this did play in somewhat in the hearing the other day, right? With uh, Sam Altman and Gary Marcus and others, there was a conversation about open source, you know, versus other methods. This was a a kind of theme in the discussion even though it wasn't exactly addressed did you kind of get that sense as well
1: yeah i mean it's been an overarching theme around ai policy and this is where i think it's it's absolutely critical to have nuance in the discussion especially when we talk about more open source models we don't always mean fully open uh, opt's training data is not fully accessible although they uh, i believe the paper shares that they train on publicly available data sets but it's not Uh, This is a question of accessibility. It's not really easy to find exact data sets that OPT trained on, which is why I classify it as downloadable. And if a a model is gated, it would not be considered fully open.
0: I suppose in your gradient, there's no real, I guess, opinion uh, about which approach is better or worse uh, from a safety perspective.
1: From being, I guess, living in this field, that's the American cultural side of me, People feel very strongly. uh, And I've found that approaches to safety generally tend to be ideological. Living more in the open source world, people feel very strongly that the most open system, regardless of the kind of content it produces or how capable it is along some performance benchmarks should be open at all times. That's not how I as Irene feel. We've seen with Hugging Face a, we did take down a model for its content, not necessarily its capability with the example of GPT 4chan. This is an example that I generally give to policymakers as well, but I try not to publicize because I don't want many people playing with a really toxic model. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, GPT 4chan was trained by, it uh, was fine-tuned on one of Eleuther's open source models by uh, Yannick Kilcher. It was fine-tuned on 4chan's politically incorrect data set, which is just some of the worst parts of the internet, but it wasn't a particularly powerful model. It just spewed really gross outputs. And that's a decision of safety, uh, of content safety, where we don't necessarily have good thresholds for that, but it's not something that should be made fully accessible to everybody. At least that's the stance that we took when we took it down from our platform.
0: You've mentioned that it's kind of ideological, almost sort of a matter of faith, I suppose, uh, by... The different companies that are taking the different approach. Do you think perhaps in five years, and 10 years' time, we'll maybe have more data points? We'll have seen in the real world how these releases happen and be able to make a judgment?
1: I mean, we have a lot of more data points today for sure than we did in the times of GPT-2, but Sadly, I feel like in this race dynamic, we don't have a ton of incentive to pioneer novel responsible research approaches unless we start to build the foundations for coordination and collaboration around labs. Uh, My optimism and especially seeing initiatives from especially, especially Partnership on AI and Stanford work towards more responsible deployment, I would like to believe that we will have more consensus on um, not just what is a responsible release, but what is the whole process leading up to release decisions? And also post-deployment, what does risk mitigation look like?
0: And I understand this is something that the folks at uh, Stanford, uh, HAI, they have asked essentially for the industry to come together around this, right? And to kind of really hammer this out and create some kind of shared understanding of how release should work.
1: I mean, Stanford's been phenomenal. They're also exceptional in the sense that they are placed physically and in the world of AI really well among, um, different developers. So I, I'm, I think the world of the, the kind of work that Helm is doing, the holistic evaluation of language models work from the Center for Re- Research and Foundation Models. I think this is a great example of how a trusted third party can evaluate models from different organizations, even if those models aren't accessible to the public. But that requires a lot of the behind the scenes work that Stanford has been doing. And the same thing with partnership on AI on convening actors around uh, the AI community.
0: I kind of just want to kind of get at some of those sort of ideological ideas that you've mentioned. The way I understand it, and perhaps this is naive, so you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, the folks who kind of argue for a more closed approach, you know, on some level, they're sort of saying, we want to minimize the harms of our products in the near term, right? So we want to make sure they're as safe as possible. We want to red team the heck out of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want to, you know, introduce as many mechanisms to prevent uh, harmful uses of our, our models. The folks who maybe are on the very other end, on the kind of more fully open end, are saying, well, we would never really be able to do that terribly well. Uh, so we want others to do it along with us. We'll have researchers look at the model. They'll be able to interrogate it. Um, government, perhaps regulators can look exactly at you know how, they, how these systems are working and how they were trained, et cetera. And at the end of the day, that will produce a better environment where an ecosystem of actors can create a safer kind of environment more overall Uh, And perhaps we avoid some of the other harms of centralization um, of of AI. Uh, Is that kind of a fair way to characterize the, as you say, ideological extremes?
1: Well, something that I often say is that no one organization, regardless of how well-resourced it is or how large it is, has all the necessary perspective, skills, expertise to fully assess and adapt a model, uh, just in the same way that there's no such thing as a base-generative bias system that is unbiased or encompasses universal values. Uh, this is where some people really put themselves in a category of open API access, something along that gradient. I feel really strongly about broad perspectives that can be done uh, to some degree in a really large organization, maybe like a Google. And this is some of the arguments for uh, Google not sharing their models, or even, for example, the, uh, the example that I gave in the Wired piece that I wrote was of more novel modalities like video, where there's less literature, people want more risk control. Meta has been really bullish about openness, except for, for example, make a video, the video generative model. So I think to, to boil it down, something that's incredibly complex, you did capture it's the, the key point that... Uh, has no real solution, I try to avoid solution-oriented language, has no um, consensus on the process to move forward, is how to seek appropriate feedback and perspectives, and how do we start to prioritize the type of safety work that needs to happen.
0: So I want to kind of get a sense, too, of why this should matter to policymakers, and is there something that you believe they should do on this? Is this something that should be codified somehow? Uh, In AI regulation, is there an aspect of release strategy which should perhaps be touched by law?
1: Yeah. So especially for policymakers, I want to emphasize that no one spot along the gradient is the safest possible release, uh, because if something's fully open, uh, as a self-proclaimed internet gremlin, people on the internet might do really weird stuff with it, might hurt people for highly capable models that have fewer safeguards. That's why safety work on open source models is important with responsible AI licenses, better documentation, safety filters. That's uh, that's a lot of what you see uh, Eleuther and Hugging Face and stability working on. But the concern, I don't think that Policymakers should automatically assume if it's closed, there's no risk, there's less malicious use, there's less insight into that model. There's less research happening. A lot of the safety research that we see today, for example, the watermarking work from University of Maryland researchers was done on an open model that was made accessible by Meta that was tested on OPT. So in order to ensure that we have a thriving research ecosystem that we can make safety work happen, researchers need access to models.
0: I guess the thing is, it sort of seems like it's, it's too soon. To say certainly that like one way of going about this is better than the other. And so it feels like lawmakers should really uh, stay away from any scheme that would diminish perhaps open release or open source approaches to generative AI. It seems like it's just really quite too soon to, to be able to make those types of judgments at all.
1: I mean, cracking down on any sort of open source model feels really counterproductive to the research world and where we are in AI is so much of what policymakers and stakeholders need to happen is research. How do we make these models safer? How do we understand them? Uh, I have in my gradient of release paper to be published back fact, the whole section on necessary investments and the actors who need to work on this. One of the examples is closing resource gaps. I'm really bullish about the national AI research resource from the US government just providing more research infrastructure like computing power, but I don't know if we'll ever get to the level of consensus needed to say, don't release in this way, Uh, having better fora for these discussions and um, better understanding of not just the technical, but also policy measures for safeguards uh, is absolutely
0: urgent. One of those safeguards that some folks have proposed is sort of like having to seek licenses before you release a model? uh, What do you make of that in this context?
1: Yeah. So I've been, I've been, talking some, to some of the folks who are proposing this licensing framework. And what I don't understand here is the capability threshold. This is the example that I give with GBT4chan. It's not a particularly capable model in uh, however our society defines high performance, but there's a reason that we don't want to make it as accessible. So when we think about licensing, there's what I really fear is undue regulatory burden on smaller actors, the folks who don't have billions of dollars to do this kinds of testing, and especially folks who are closer to the lower resource end of this resource gap. When we also think about capability, a lot of my conversations with policymakers is, what the heck does that mean? What are our benchmarks for performance? We don't have standards bodies for, just like we don't have it for re- responsible releases. We don't have it for testing and evaluating models the way that a lot of the AI research community has been dubbing a system as high performance, has been based off of, honestly, arbitrary benchmarks that a lot of other folks have been using and not necessarily including social impact evaluations, which I have a whole other rant on that we don't have to get into.
0: Well, perhaps we will bring you back on to get into that rant uh, and also maybe just to look at how this question's evolving uh, sometime in the next few months. I'd love that. Thank you, Irene.
1: For sure. Thanks so much.
0: Next up, a conversation with two of the authors of a new report from EPIC, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, on the harms of generative AI and what to do about them.
2: I'm Callie Schrader. I am EPIC Senior Counsel and Global Privacy Counsel for the Electronic Privacy Information Center.
3: I'm Ben Winters. I am senior counsel and lead of the AI and Human Rights Project at the Electronic Privacy Information Center.
0: You are two of the authors, along with your colleagues, of Generating Harms, Generative AI's Impact and Paths Forward, uh, released this month. Great report, and I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. I want to talk about a range of issues here, but first, I just thought I'd ask you to kind of speak a little bit about the frame you use in this. I, I found in the, you know, kind of opening paragraphs of this, you, you refer to uh, Daniel Citron and Daniel Solove's typology of privacy harms, Joy uh, Bulamwini's taxonomy of algorithmic harms. Talk about how you applied these, you know, frameworks, these rubrics to the question of generative AI.
3: The whole genesis for uh, writing this report is the fact that with the release of generative AI and all the hype around it, you know, a lot of people are focusing on harms that are very sort of abstract and in the future, whereas just in non-generative AI, we have been talking about and documenting, documenting and advocating around very current harms. And so... Uh, we wanted to map those current harms in the way that those are being you know carried out and continued in generative AI contexts. Um, and we want to ground those in as specific, uh, categories as possible. So people can really, you know, feel this concretely and have language to use uh, when discussing this and when maybe addressing it so that policy responses are not these vague things that are directed by corporations, but are are sort of mappable to these things, whether they be um, about physical harms, economic harms, loss of opportunity, whatnot. So both of those taxonomies uh, sort of are, are a little bit uh, overlapping at times, but I think quite complementary and, and gets a really wide range of the the type of harms we have.
2: Part of the reason that we structured it pulling from those set harm categories was we wanted to make sure that when there's conversation about, you know, what can generate AI hurt or what's the, what's the problem with it, there was something concrete we could point to that was easily understandable where we weren't kind of talking across purposes, but about the same thing. So when we went through the categories of like, well, what's the harm in the intellectual property space and what's the harm in the privacy space and what's the harm in misinformation and environment and all of these other areas, you could say, OK, the harm falls uh, on this you know, financial level or it falls at this uh, communication or relational level. And it was it was something that was a more direct comparison that we thought would make it a lot easier to have these conversations in a productive way.
0: You do chronicle a range of harms, in, including some that we've discussed on this podcast quite a lot. Uh, the potential for these technologies to be used for information manipulation, disinformation, uh, as well as harassment, impersonation, extortion, other forms of fraud. But I want to focus in particular on, I suppose, what is Epic's bread and butter issue around uh, privacy. I think one of the things that your report points out well is that not only do AI systems, uh, these generative AI systems, the large language models rely on hoovering up uh, a massive amount of data in order to train the models, but they also create incentives for companies to continue to hoover up uh, as much information as possible in order to uh, continue to develop more sophisticated AI. I want to ask you a little bit about that, how you see that dynamic playing out and what can be done about it. So one thing that we've seen in
3: this, in this field in a very short amount of time is that there. Is a lot of money being poured into it. Um, and so as you as you said, the incentives are really there to be able to build, use, and sort of continually be able to refine and and make slightly more impressive these generative AI systems. In the you know, federal level, at least in the US, we have real no controls on data collection or the way that you collect data for one purpose and use it to another one. And so what organizations are incentivized to do here are to sort of hoard and collect as much data as possible because they see that they can maybe use it in the future or sell it to somebody else. And so the the sort of uptake of these types of tools and the popularity of them and and sort of uh, some deference by lawmakers, especially to them. As, as like this inevitable revolution uh, makes it so that the, like, the average person's privacy is more in danger because AI systems for forever have increased sort of the incentive to get more and more data, but especially large language models are built on a large amount of data.
2: Yeah. I think at a very base level, there's two factors that really play into this constant absorption of more data. One is, In tech in general, there's this belief that more data equals better, data equals money. And so the more you can get, the better for you as a company. And the the other flip side of that, when it comes to generative AI, is the belief that the more information that a model is trained on, the more that's in the data set, the more specific and the more accurate and the more intelligent a system will appear in its output and what it's generating. Uh, And I think those two playing off of each other have really incentivized uh, companies involved in generative AI to set the default as collect as much as possible, train on as much as possible. And so part of putting this report together was trying to provide a disincentive or a reason for companies to consider that not being the default and why they need to look at much more carefully the amount of data and the type of data that they're taking in and that they're generating and putting back into that cycle.
0: The risk you say is that the information that is perhaps not sensitive when it's spread across multiple databases or websites, you know, could be extremely revealing when it's collected in a single place, which is effectively what these AI systems are doing. If they're hoovering up some large portion of the internet, of course, they're essentially creating repositories that have sort of never existed before. I mean, we might argue perhaps that Google search or uh, other search engines in past have, have gotten close But this seems to be putting a kind of, you know, interface layer on top of it, on top of all this information that kind of changes things a bit.
2: It's both the, the amount of data all collected in one place. And also that when you have that amount of data, there's the inferences that can be drawn from that. So sometimes even from different information points that are not sensitive in themselves, it's very easy to draw something that is extremely sensitive. So if I'm looking up, if people have information that I've been in a location where there's, say, an, an abortion clinic and also saw that I was looking up work leave for medical procedures and things like that, you could make the inference that maybe I'm looking at having an abortion, which is very sensitive and personal from information that isn't necessarily by itself sensitive and personal. So it's it's also that factor of all of these information points coming together to create more risk for individuals.
0: You see six harms related to privacy and data collection. Uh, they range across physical, economic, psychological, uh, and then three specific ways uh, that generative AI systems may negatively impact individual autonomy. Uh, can you take us through those? I mean, I think at the very base level, the, the physical
3: harms can be the fact that People's personal data is out there that that, as Callie just outlined, that a person considering or seeking an abortion may be able to be targeted. Same thing goes for um, the location or whether that's live or just more generally speaking or the activities of domestic violence or stalking victims And, and more generally, even if you have not. Yet been a victim of a crime. There is a really widespread targeting of people, particularly women. Um, and so there is, there's a real physical safety harm to the fact that more and more data is out there and more at risk. You know, the that second one is uh economic loss. One sort of interesting place where uh some halts about the adoption of gender of AI technology is actually from companies. I think Samsung is one of them, because they're uh, as open AI, for example, their chat GPT product uh, learns from the inputs from um, their users. And so people have input things that are like trade secrets that they would never otherwise get out. And then that has been leaking elsewhere. So there's a real economic loss there for businesses. And that could also spread to individuals. Psychologically, it is sort of related to the physical harm to a certain extent. There is that fear, that knowledge, that just like the fact that that type of uh, precision of your location information or just information about where you live, things about you that you have um, either a right to remove in the past or just do not want to necessarily be connected to you, et cetera, or just incorrect information. There is that like increased anxiety level at the very base sense, but also, you know, really warranted fear and high levels of anxiety if the, the data could impact them negatively, at spread, especially given the the wide risks of data abuse. And and the the three sort of autonomy-related harms uh, for the privacy violations. The lack of control of your personal data and the lack of ability to see what's in the training set and sort of take that out of the training set or in the sort of system in general, uh, that's a loss of autonomy, right? It's your data. It's information about you. If you cannot control where that's being used or how people can get access to that, um, whether directly or inadvertently through a, a sort of output of a, of a generative ad machine, that's That's really, you know, concerning. And there's been an example of a woman's medical records that was hoovered up into a photo generator. Then that person's literal face or record or something is out there onto something else's and they have zero control over that. Similarly, uh, there's a lack of autonomy in the fact that you're not aware at all that those, that data is being used. Um, there's not like some tracking mechanisms where, you know, a certain information piece of information about you is at these a hundred people. It's sort of this, uh, diffuse, like wild, wild west, where you could never really be confident about, uh, what's happening. And you certainly are not being asked by these companies, oh, is it okay if we use this data from you, this type of source? and and the last one is is related especially uh given the the likelihood and and examples of chat gpt giving like incorrect biographical information um there could be that loss of opportunity with you know you saw the example of the law professor that was like inadvertently incorrectly listed as part of uh you know a search that was on ChatGPT was like can you give me a list of law professors that have been accused of sexual assault and who's on it but he had never been accused of that and so that that could really you know in addition to the psychological harms really lose, lead to loss of opportunity loss of relationships um and really loss of control over how people are perceiving
0: you you also get into various risks on data security, physical, economic, reputational, psychological, again, autonomy and, and discrimination. Discrimination is a topic that does come up, you know, on in multiple ways uh, throughout this report. You highlight risk to the environment. You highlight there the excellent work on this by uh, Sasha Lucioni. Let's talk a little bit about labor, uh, labor manipulation, theft, displacement. This seems like an area where there are still lots of question marks.
2: It definitely is, and it's interesting because I feel. Uh, at least from what I've been seeing in news reporting, labor seems to be one of the areas that is causing the most concern uh, when it comes to questions and about just being replaced by machines and by machine learning. Uh, We've seen already that there are newsrooms that have discussed or taken action on severely limiting or reducing their um, writers and reporters and deciding to use generative text and generative articles Um, In Hollywood, there's a lot of real discussion about screenwriters being replaced in some cases by these systems. There's talk about editors being replaced or students using this this kind of technology to generate more product. And so the problem is not just that there's possibility of job loss, but there's also real harm possibilities in the monopolies in this market, because. The early entrance into generative AI frequently are these really large companies that are able to corner the market, not just on the development of these systems, but also on taking up all of the experts that are able to develop and audit and do uh, ethics research in these systems. So if everyone that's an expert in this area is working for one of, say, five companies, the space, it becomes much harder to have real discussions in this space where there's a Ideas are being challenged and people are allowed to speak freely without worrying that they're going to harm their own job prospects if they want to uh, move to a different position or move to a different company. So I don't know. That's been a really interesting area to look into the lack of mobility for people that are specialized in this area and also Looking at what jobs are going to be outsourced to machines in this sense, and where you can trust machines to do that. Because I think another aspect of the labor problem is that maybe there's too much trust that machine, that generative AI is able to take over these jobs at this and function at the same level that human laborers have been able to function. And we may not see what the downsides are of that or where. These systems can't stand up to the same level that human workers have been until it's too late and those jobs have already been eliminated or taken over and we see repercussions from it.
3: And the other main uh, thing about the labor section uh, that I think is a little bit undercovered is uh, the human labor and, and often extremely exploited human labor behind the creation and maintenance of these systems, right? And so there are data labelers and data annotators, which are basically paid to look through the sort of raw data of these systems, whether those be text or photos. And one job is sort of labeling what's in there, so the so the system could train on that a little bit better because they don't know automatically. And the second one, which you know, there was a story in time uh, about how OpenAI outsourced work to a company called Sama. Um, and they were paying workers in Kenya less than $2 an hour to label uh the most egregious text that was in the dating set for a data set for uh OpenAI so that when it was to market, they would know like some of the most egregious, most homophobic, most racist things. But first, that is being uh forced of like extremely low wage exploited workers, they're subject to that, reading that and and given that responsibility. But then on the other side, it's like, oh, look at this shiny tool. It's a genius thing. but it's under, you know, created by hundreds and hundreds of of, ex- of criminally underpaid workers.
0: One of the aspects of that story around Sama that I feel like was sort of undercovered was the, you know, apparent activity that Sama was engaged in on behalf of ChatGPT to collect what appear to be you know, images of, of child sexual abuse, uh, sexual and violent images. I don't even really understand the legality of how that it could be done, uh, how a firm could potentially go on the open internet, collect these images, and then essentially package them for a company to build classifiers. I feel like this is a kind of an underreported question, and clearly these companies have to build these classifiers if they don't want these types of outputs to come out of these systems, uh, but it, it seems like a real uh, real dark piece of this sort of AI industrial labor landscape.
3: Absolutely. and it just exacerbates the like extreme power disparity between the, as Callie said, like the first movers that are these huge companies, um, like the people that are get it, coming out with these are Microsoft and Google, and those are the people that have the power to do it, and they're exploiting extremely underpaid workers at the, at the bottom of the, uh, the other sort of side.
0: And that is a part of this report that you know kind of comes through. And I think you know other writing on this, of course, leads your mind in the direction of the devaluation of labor, heightened inequality. I mean, these are issues we've been contending with now for decades, but seems like these technologies are likely just going to push us further in, in that direction.
2: I think that's true. But I also think it's interesting looking at the spaces where generative AI seems to be uh, most at risk of taking over jobs. So there. are has been kind of uproar in the legal industry with the discussion that generative AI may take over contact contract writing. And we may, you know, lawyers may all be out of a job, which I, I think that's overblown. But I also think it's really interesting that one of the industries that seems to be at risk of displacement is one that is so specialized and that does, you know, previously at least has taken a great deal of school and training and licensing. And also, you know, I imagine writers' rooms, journalists, things like that. It's it's this industry where you're supposed to have this background training and kind of know the systems and know how to protect sources and know all of these these different requirements. And and so it's interesting that what seems to be being replaced isn't what we have previously considered to be low level or in, in entry level jobs. These these are more specialized uh, industries that are also at a high risk of replacement.
0: Well, I want to talk a little bit about forms of redress and your recommendations. You know, there are a ton of them in this. Uh, One in particular, you know, you talk about product liability law. Uh, You say that policymakers, plaintiffs, attorneys should explore ways common law and statutory product uh, liability law regimes can apply to redress generative AI harms. There is a lot of hype and a lot of bullshit around what are effectively bullshit generators. And perhaps that's a good place to start. But let's talk a little bit about some of the other recommendations you have in this report. Maybe each of you kind of give me your top three.
2: So first, I, I think that businesses that are looking at using generative AI—not just businesses, businesses, government, anyone who's looking at using generative AI for a for a system—before uh, bringing it at all, needs to really seriously consider if generative AI is the best tool for whatever the goal is in this case. Um, I personally feel that generative AI is falling, prey to a similar hype that blockchain did when it was first coming out, where uh, it became such a buzzword that everyone just wanted to incorporate it right away and was was so thrilled about the promise of this new technology. but uh, there are so many places where generative AI is being kind of shoehorned into an area where it's not only not, not the best tool. For the function. In many ways, it's a much worse tool than what we've been using previously. So I think honest assessment there of where generative AI is appropriate and where it's not is one of the key recommendations. Um, Another one is data mapping. If you're using a generative AI tool, you really need to map where is the information coming from that's going into that data set. You need to have a real clear awareness of what's in that data training set How often more information is being added, whether that's automatic, whether that's reviewed. With the output, is that being fed right back into the system? Is that being checked at any level? Uh, Who is it going to? How is it being used? So, the data mapping part of that, I think, is very important. And then finally, I would say uh, doing impact assessments and audits to look at what's coming out of these systems. How are they functioning? um, And can you demonstrate, like, if you are claiming that this is a an AI that's generating all this factual information, that's generating high level documentation that doesn't have bias or discrimination in it. Can you demonstrate, can you prove that your system doesn't have that stuff or is it all talk? I feel like all of these systems need to be able to actually back up their claims, forcing people to have audits or assessments where there's a tangible document where you can show the work you've gone through to prove this is the first step there.
0: How about you, Ben? So I feel like the the
3: the part of generative AI that I feel like is is most concerning to me right now is its use in misinformation and disinformation and scams a lot of the sort of uh what we call information manipulation in the paper and so I think our our number one regu- um, recommendation right now is to pass a law at the federal level that makes you know the intimidation deception or misleading about an election uh or a candidate you know whether that be hey it's actually good to vote on Wednesday and uh this the different parties vote on different days or um you know LeBron James endorses Donald Trump and you could do this voice with generative ai um that should be made illegal and there should be uh, sort of a private right of action so that the person harmed can take it into their own hands and sue the parties that are responsible and and one bill that was introduced in past years uh, is called the deceptive practices and voter intimidation Prevention Act uh, so exactly that and but you know that was not created with generative AI in mind and we have seen this for years and years that people are doing these types of messages and that they're uh, targeted at certain um you know communities but generative AI is just going to make that easier and faster and more likely and less hard to discern so, that's probably number one that to pass that sort of law to make it very clear that that is illegal. Um, it's pretty wild that that is not a law right now, at least <laughs> at least in my point of view. Second would be to the use of a combination of either rulemaking at the Federal Trade Commission or legislatively uh, requiring some sort of data minimization standard. You know, data minimization sort of at the very basic sense stands for the concept of. Uh, that you only collect the data that you need for the product or service that the consumer requested. You don't just get to hoover up more data, just like we were talking about earlier. And and that you know some that is takes a lot of different forms exactly how it's written, but it's uh, a part of privacy laws like ones that have passed in Colorado and California in the states, and in the proposed um, American data American uh, data privacy protection act, which uh, you know passed out of committee last Congress and is hopefully being able to get passed this year. But that is like a really essential way to try to uh, stave off and make clear that it's illegal to do this just extra hoovering up. And then lastly, I think there should be a requirement, uh, whether that be sort of informally through conferences and papers or formally through a sort of government administration, publish uh, information about the environmental footprints of generative AI models and the continued use. So there is a substantial amount of water and energy uh, required to do the training and cooling of computing systems for the amount of time that you need to uh, sort of process all of this data. There's data centers that need to be Done. And the more people use it, the more energy and rare minerals are used for certain computing systems. And while we're in the middle of a increasingly um, worsening climate crisis, it's, uh, you know, really concerning that that is not a major concern with the increased use of generative AI. So really need to be at the very least uh, clear and publish information about it.
0: The American Data Privacy and Protection Act does appear multiple times throughout uh, this report in its recommendations. Uh, I'm surprised that more people aren't making connection between the sort of generative AI hype cycle and the, just the urgent need for some federal privacy legislation, particularly in this country. Uh, you know, I'm talking to the two of you today. You both happen to be in Brussels. Uh, you know, Of course, the EU has on some level already addressed this fundamentally. But here we're essentially, you know, still flying blind.
3: Yeah, we, we are with you there. Um, I think I think it maybe hasn't yet caught on just because it's still a, a fairly new and the way it's being messaged about is extremely overwhelming. And the, there's been a successful effort to really make these the focus on these harms that are really far away and talk about, you know, these high-minded different agency, different licensing schemes, the things that Sam Altman is trying to say in front of Congress. But yeah, there we, you can sort of, use the, the solutions that are
0: required for the problems we've had for the last 10, 15 years and start to address of AI. It just occurs to me that, you know, all sorts of things that have always been a problem and uh, important in the conversation about tech just are more important uh, in the context of AI. Even things like encryption, you know, the idea that perhaps uh, we need to preserve encryption, not just to protect communications and the safety of the transfer of information from prying eyes and perhaps uh, authoritarian government interests, but also just from AIs you know, that might want to hoover up uh, information as it transits the internet. But I'll, I'll ask you maybe just the last question, since you've kind of, I suppose, referred in some way to the last 10 or 15 years and some of the, the fights we've uh, been in on, on tech and on tech rights and digital rights. Epic's been around since you know 1994. I think that's just right around the sort of time of the advent of the World Wide Web. You know, we're clearly moving into a different uh, phase at this point. Your goal has always been to sort of preserve data privacy. Uh, you see that as core to democracy. You know, how's that going uh, in the age of AI? How do you, how are you sort of feeling about the remit of your work? Is it getting harder essentially?
2: I think both yes and no. I I think it's getting harder in that whenever there's new technology and new challenges to privacy and new ways that data can be absorbed and generated, uh, the speed and the volume is what is really challenging for us. The speed that these different technologies collect, reuse, uh, take inferences from. Uh, and bring up new challenges and new risks in privacy, that is always really challenging. But I think some of the problems that we see, it tends to be the same old privacy problems, just repackaged in another form over and over. So in many ways, the the fights for digital rights and the discussions about control over information and human autonomy and, and privacy and privilege and bias, democracy, all of that, those arguments tend to stay fairly consistent. It's just the way that we apply them that keeps evolving.
3: The one thing I'll add and maybe try to end on a slightly hopeful note uh, is that I think that with the increase of there's an increasing awareness about certain uh, data privacy abuses, right? So there was uh, Cambridge Analytica, there was, you know, all sorts of, there's Clearview. Um, So people are getting more and more examples and seeing it in their everyday life. um, Some of the concerning or risky things. So I think that, more and more it's going to be more politically palatable to people, and so hopefully um, you know I think the the IapP uh, a great resource um, has has this report that shows that from two thousand and eighteen there was like two state privacy bills in the whole country introduced um, and last year there was like sixty so that's five years um, there's been insane growth, and not every bill is particularly good or particularly strong, but that is reflective of the fact that even elected representatives are, you know, noticing that it's something they have to address. Uh, as Kelly said, the the same sort of things remain a problem and remain what we're talking about. But I think we're getting a little bit closer and connecting with more people.
0: An optimistic note to end on. Um, I thank you both and would recommend that everyone go and uh, take a look at this report, which is on of course, the Epic website, again, uh, its title is Generating Harms, Generative AI's Impact and Paths Forward. That's at epic.org. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for having us. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at Justin at TechPolicy.Press or find us on Twitter at TechPolicyPress. Thanks to my guests, thanks to my co founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.